0: This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." For not even his brothers believed in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, that we can gather together and look to your word. And as we look to this passage in John, Father, we ask that you would guide our thoughts and minds through it. And as we see Jesus himself reflecting the words of God the Father, we ask that our understanding will be guided by that same idea, that we are seeking your word today not the word of any man, any preacher, but your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we've got a lot of work to do this morning. Uh, Chapter 7, verses 1 to 36. And in my Bible, it happens to be one perfect page, one full page. And so, uh, when we come to John, we're in chapter 7 now. Chapter 7, chapter 8 forms something of a transition. John is now beginning to move into a different theme. He's beginning to show the actions and activity of Jesus as he's now moving from Galilee, now going to move back to Jerusalem again for another feast. And you see these words that Ben just read that his brothers, Jesus' brothers, who we know from Matthew, uh, Simon, uh, Jude, James, are with him, and they want Jesus now to go to Jerusalem And their critique is that you can't make something happen, Jesus, down here in Galilee. You can't do that in these small towns and villages you're in, that you have to go to Jerusalem if you're going to get this operation underway. Let me just use this as a taking off point for a thought that I think might be helpful to us. There has been uh, for centuries, a couple hundred years now, a question in New Testament theology which is asked and says, who is the founder of Christianity? Christianity. Is it Jesus or is it Paul? Now, most conservative types would say, well, Jesus is a founder of Christianity, where more liberal types would say, no, Paul is a founder of Christianity. And by that, they mean that Paul started something new and something different that changed the message of Jesus. And for them, the liberal message of Jesus is turn the other cheek and love one another and these sort of ideas. And so they want to get rid of all that Paul said, less than that, saying he started something else, but the message of Jesus is the critical thing. And so we ask, we often say that, you know, Jesus is the answer, right? Jesus is the answer. But that requires us now to ask, what's the question? And for conservative types, you know, we often say, well, the problem is that Jesus is the answer to what Adam did. Jesus is the answer to the sin problem that's come into the world. And because of Adam's sin, we have Jesus now providing the answer for us. And we see this coming up in the next several chapters, next several months. We'll see Jesus going through the Passion Week, His death, Crucifixion, resurrection. But what happens then is, through a couple hundred years ago, the focus on Jesus being the answer to Adam's sin meant, impliedly, that what happened in the Jewish world didn't matter. That although God called Abraham and through him Isaac, Jacob, and the children of Israel, he took them out of Egypt through the Exodus into Sinai, and then brought them into the promised land, through their own sin, they fall the kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon take them, all of that becomes sort of neutralized and set aside. And so if you go back into the 17, 1800s, a lot of focus is on Christianity being something very radically different, radically distinct and new, very different from the Jewish world. You can ignore all of that Jewish world. In fact, if you go to the writings of the great reformer Martin Luther, he himself wrote very hostile and negative anti-Semitic things about the Jews. Luther himself said very evil things about the Jewish people. And that became a mindset through much of the Christian world that the Jews failed. God gave them away. They failed. And so God now comes through Jesus and makes a simpler way, an easier way to go to heaven. All you have to do now is believe because Jesus does all the work. So it makes it easier. And so that sort of a mindset lasted up until after World War II. And of course, we all know about the Holocaust, the Shoah, as the Jews call it. The, uh, the, the great tragedy, the cataclysm that came upon the Jewish people is during that war, at least six million of them were killed in Auschwitz and other camps such as that. New Testament theology began to change after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and other Jewish writings came about. Now, if today I said, Jesus was Jewish, you would think, well, that's pretty obvious, we know that. But you go back a hundred years ago and say, Jesus was Jewish, and they'd wonder, why do you care about that? Jesus was kind of perceived to be the first Christian, and the first Christian, and everybody else is after that, but he's very different from the Jewish world. But what's happened now in the last even 40 years, beginning the mid-70s, is a re-emphasis on the Jewish world of Jesus, that he himself was a Jew, and that what Jesus is doing is set within the context of the Jewish world. Jesus himself, as we've seen through John, is saying that I am fulfilling What the covenant of Abraham said. I am the Messiah prophesied in Isaiah and the other Old Testament prophets. I am the one who's coming now as the Redeemer, as this Messiah. When we say Jesus Christ, we often think Christ is like his last name. Like there's Jesus Christ, there's Joseph Christ, there's Mary Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah or Messiah in Hebrew, the Messiah. So when you see Jesus Christ, you can almost in your mind turn that over and say... Jesus the Messiah, that's who he was. He was the Jewish Messiah, not simply the Christian Christ. And so when we put Jesus within this Jewish world, this Jewish context, we see very different things about him. And really, it's only been the last 30 or 40 years with these other Jewish writings and a reexamination of the Old Testament in light of what Jesus did, in light of what he said, that there's been a new understanding that Jesus is really the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promised. Even the Gospel of John was most radically used by those that said, Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He came down from God, kind of occupied some space here, then went back to God. He was God all along, and so there's this vision of him like that. Although Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe his earthly life, John was seen as this sort of heavenly description of Jesus. But if we notice carefully what John's doing, he's depicting a very Jewish Jesus standing among very Jewish people. Pharisees and Sadducees and Jewish people, proclaiming to him, to them what the Jewish law was, what the Jewish prophecies were all about. And so when we come to John chapter 7, in these first verses we see beginning in verse 7, after this Jesus went about in Galilee. Now the after this is referring to everything we've seen prior to this, in particular chapter 6. Now as we've seen the past several weeks in chapter 6, we have in John chapter 6 verse 4, Jesus at a Passover. If we go back to chapter 5, we have there Jesus at what's called a feast. If the feast in chapter 5 is the Feast of Tabernacles, and it probably was, then we are at the next Feast of Tabernacles. And so, a year has passed since that miracle where Jesus healed that man who had been lame for 38 years. So, we have the Feast of uh, of Passover in chapter 6, verse 4. Jesus stays in Galilee, feeds the 5,000. Uh, performs uh, miracles. People are impressed by him. He's got a large crowd. But what happens to that large crowd? As with many large crowds who are impressed by a good lunch, a good dinner, good uh, thoughts like that, they stayed with him as long as he was taking care of their physical needs. But then when you get to the hard teaching of Jesus, as Lars showed us last week, they began to fade away. The people began to walk away. And so as you see in chapter 6, verse 60 and through 66 there, the disciples that were following Jesus began to walk away. Why? Not because they didn't like his works. They liked the healing. They liked the food. They didn't like his teaching. His teaching was what was hard. And so now we find Jesus' ministry in something of a crisis. He finds himself now with disciples that seem to be following him walking away. These are false disciples. These were never truly believers. These were people who are looking at what Jesus said and did... Decided they didn't like what he said, so they walked away. And then we have at the end of chapter 6 that confession by Peter You you are the Holy One of God. You are the Savior. You are the Messiah. But Jesus, at this point in chapter 7, has only a few disciples left. So chapter 6 ends at Pentecost, which was in early, probably the year 31. And now we're at the end of 31 uh, and uh, in October. So about six or seven months have passed since chapter 6 began since the feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water, and Jesus teaching. Seven months goes by, and John tells us nothing about that. But the other books do, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Luke in particular, if you look at your Bible, mine is a red letter. If you look at chapters 9 to 19, you'll find out it's nearly all in red. Luke describes what Jesus is doing through these many months. And what he's doing is teaching. He's teaching his disciples. He's not building large crowds any longer. He's focusing on teaching his disciples what he's about and what he's about in light of what the Old Testament's about, what the scriptures are about. So Jesus is focusing on these many things. And we have within that passage the Transfiguration, where Jesus shows his glory to Peter, James, and John. We have many other teachings and the parables about the kingdom of God. All of this is going on. The disciples are taking all of this in, wondering what it's about. Jesus is even now, before this chapter 7 begins, He spent time telling his disciples about his coming crucifixion. Now, they're not understanding this. Why would you as a Messiah have to die? Because in their reading of the Old Testament, they're understanding the Messiah. The Messiah is a great liberator that comes and liberates us from oppression. And now you're saying that you're going to come and suffer and die? They had trouble absorbing and understanding that. They just couldn't shift that paradigm that Jesus was now teaching to something else. And so they're looking at their own life saying... We want to follow Messiah. And this guy sure looks like it. We love his teaching. It's very profound and very different. But we want a different kind of kingdom that he's talking about. So maybe there's a way we can help bring in the kind of kingdom that we want. So Jesus, even with his own small group of disciples, is having to battle them. So in chapter 7, before we get there, after these things, as John says, Jesus is on the perimeter. He goes up to Tyre and Sidon, which is at the northwest by the Mediterranean Sea, uh, in, in the Phoenician region, he cuts across into the Decapolis, which are 10 cities uh, in the east of the Jordan River, generally Gentile cities. And so he's doing all these other things in these small towns and villages. Now when we come to chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He's walking around teaching in Galilee. And it says he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So already we see Jesus' ministry is being focused in Galilee, in Judea, where in chapter 5 we saw the healing of the lame man who'd been lame for 38 years, the challenge that we have there. If you go to chapter 5, verse 19, you will see there the uh, charges brought by the Pharisees. One, that you're uh, dishonoring the Sabbath by healing a man and telling him to walk on the Sabbath. And secondly, that you're blaspheming, claiming that you're being equal with God. So the Pharisees bring their charge, and then chapter 5 ends with Jesus teaching in defense of what he's really doing. But his brothers now are looking at him, wondering, why are you staying in Galilee? Small regions, small towns, insignificant areas. What they say is that the real center of power is Jerusalem. Verse 2, now the feast of the Jews, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now you have to take that fifth verse and use that to understand what they're really saying. It doesn't show up necessarily in the English, but the way the Greek is sort of phrased, it's what's called a social challenge. His brothers are saying, you know, Jesus, you've been walking around through all these regions talking about you're the Messiah. You've done some miracles. They may or may not have been with Jesus during the feeding of the five thousand. The last time we hear of his brothers is in chapter two, when Jesus and his brothers and four disciples go to the wedding feast at Cana. So they were there for that. We don't hear them again till now. And so, after a couple years of Jesus' ministry, his own brothers don't believe him. And so we have the first point of our outline: the skeptical Jesus with his brothers. They're skeptical. Now you might wonder. Well, shouldn't these brothers who know Jesus so well, who know he's so perfect, they must have heard that their whole life. Why don't you do what Jesus did all their life? Could he be the Messiah? In their mind, they're thinking perhaps he might be, in some sense, the political Messiah we're all looking for. He seems to be very charismatic. He's got a lot of followers, people that are interested in him. But the way they're saying this, it's really very sarcastic. It's very sort of challenging. It's so you know, if you really say you are who you are, Then let's go to Jerusalem and let's prove it. Let's go to Jerusalem and have you show off your talents in front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and even the Romans. Let's go to Jerusalem and let's get a real following up there because you can't do that in Galilee. Now, what they're saying in the worldly sense might be true. That if you're going to try and build some large kingdom, you might want to go to where the power is in Jerusalem and make it happen there. But they're looking at all of this from their own human perspective. They're looking for a founder of something different. Jesus is doing something different than even what they're thinking. And so they say, let's leave here. Let's go show your works to your disciples. Now, the disciples may be people who saw Jesus' works in chapter 5 and who remember what he did there. And so they're looking at those as other disciples he may have. But there weren't many of them up there. But his brothers didn't even believe him. And so Jesus says to them in verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So a couple of times here, Jesus says, it's not my time. My time is not yet fully come. And so Jesus, as you know, is speaking prophetically of his crucifixion, of that Passion Week and his resurrection... His time to go up to be crucified is not yet. Now, they're thinking if you're going to make something of yourself in, in these uh, uh, talks you're giving, and these crowds you're uh, leading, then go up there and give a rousing speech in the temple square and let's really make it happen. Jesus says, not yet. What Jesus is doing is following what is God's timing. And all of us in our own lives have to understand that same thing ourselves. That God has an appointed time for events in our life. For Jesus, he had a specific appointed time for his crucifixion. But what Jesus says to his brothers is, I have a time, but you don't. Any time is as good as any other time for you guys. You're unbelievers. What he's saying there is, all of us have an appointed time to be judged by God. But if you're not a believer, then any time is the same as any other time for you. It doesn't matter. There's no significant moments in your life like there is for me. And so he's challenging his brothers in this sort of way, saying, what your life is, the way you're leading it, is going to be of no consequence. If you want to have a life of consequence, then there's only one way. And he will say, Jesus will say, it's through me. And so he tells his brothers that the world cannot hate you. Why not? Well, because they're of the world. They are of the world. Now, the Greek word world there is the Greek word "cosmos." The word cosmos, and so we get the word world from that. The word cosmos means to bring chaos into order. The word cosmetics comes from the same idea, to bring chaos into order. (laughs) And so Jesus is saying, you are of the world. You are of this chaotic world. That's who you are. And the world can't hate you because you're with them. You're partners with them. But the world hates me, Jesus says. Why? Because I tell it of its evil. Now we live in a day and age when it is becoming more and more challenging to be able to say that what the world does, what the world preaches, what the world system is about is evil. It sounds so harsh. It sounds so dramatic. It sounds so condemning. Shouldn't we just love one another and love others into the kingdom and share with them the joy of what the gospel is rather than challenge the world in its way of thinking? If you look at the teaching of Jesus. And what's strange is there are those who want to look at the liberal Jesus and look at, again, those uh, platitudes of turn the other cheek, love one another, those sort of ideas. They get rid of everything else, Jesus said. They want to get rid of Paul. You know, Paul never talked about hell, but Jesus did. Jesus talked about the coming judgment more often than anybody. And so he's talking that way. And if you look at the teaching of Jesus, you see how really divisive it truly is. Jesus was dividing through his teaching and so his brothers didn't want to hear about that. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And you can look at in a number of places, First uh, Timothy 1, I think, where again, where there's this whole recitation of all the evil things in the world. And we see now, even in our own day and age, the world taking what even not many decades ago would be considered evil and saying, now this is normal. This is an alternative. And you can do all these other things. It's all open game. And so you go to the feast, Jesus says. I'm not going up to the feast. My time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now the trip to the feast would have been sort of a big deal. But it's time to go. His brothers and their caravan undoubtedly headed north as skeptics, leaving Jesus behind. Now this Feast of Tabernacles is one of three major pilgrim feasts, as they call it. In the Jewish world, they would go to Jerusalem on these pilgrim feasts, the first being Passover, Pasach in Hebrew, they would go there for the Passover, which was a time when they remembered what God did for them in delivering them from Egypt. Then they would go to the Feast of uh, Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, which was a time when they remembered that God gave Moses the law. And these are all celebrations of remembrance of what God has done for them in the past. The Feast of Tabernacles also is one of remembrance. It's, It's this time remembering that God protected them through the desert. Forty years in the Sinai Desert, God brought those people into the promised land. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was a time when uh, at least all the Jewish men and their families would go to Jerusalem. Nearly all of them would go, as many as were able. And they would go and build booths or tents, or we might call it shelters. It makes more sense in my mind to call it the Feast of Shelters, the Feast of Booths. But they would take twigs and sticks and make little lean-tos and camp out for a week. It was a way of camping out during the summertime, late fall, September, October, and remember what God had done for them in protecting their people in the desert. But Josephus, the Jewish historian, said it was a great uh, time of celebration. The people loved the Feast of Tabernacles. They loved going to Jerusalem, having great parties, enjoying one another's fellowship. And on the eighth day, it was uh, a rip-roaring time. They enjoyed that. They celebrated. They drank wine, and they had a good time remembering what God had done for them. That was the purpose of all of this. Think now about the Jewish way of understanding Jesus when he's talking about himself being the tabernacle. Do you remember what John 1, 14 says? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there, skene, is to dwell, means to tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So Jesus himself says, I'm the one who is the tabernacle. Even in the transfiguration, we see in Mark 9, Matthew 17, Jesus is there. And Peter sees Jesus with Moses and Elijah and says, can I go build booths for you? Can I build shelters for you? Let's have the Feast of Tabernacles now. Because Peter understood Jesus, Moses, and Elijah to be the three who had come as the Messiah. And so Peter wanted to celebrate this time of tabernacles, this time of celebration for what Jesus has done for his people. And so this is a great celebration. They would have a couple of ordinances or things that would go on a water-pouring ceremony, and some, light, uh, some lighting of lights that you'll see in the next couple of weeks as this is all explained. But Jesus says, it's not yet my time. And so we end in verse 9 with that, verse 10. But after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly but in private. Well, now Jesus said, it's not my time to go up. The brothers take off in the caravan, and three days later, in the middle of the feast, Jesus then takes off. So people wonder, you know, is this a contradiction? Did Jesus lie to his brothers or something like that? I think what it's getting at is this. I don't want to go up, get this, I don't want to go up with you guys. My time is not to go up with you unbelievers. You take your caravan. It's a caravan from uh, Galilee, about 15 miles south to Jerusalem, but we call it up because you go from 600 feet below sea level to 2,700 feet above, so about 3,300, 3,400 feet up. So it's a long hike to get up to Jerusalem. But Jesus sends his brothers, his family. And if you remember Luke, when Jesus was 12 and got lost in the caravan, it was a whole day's walk. So it might be miles and miles long. This caravan of Galileans goes to Jerusalem and Jesus stays behind. Now, when all the people are gone, it says Jesus does go up himself. But we learn from Luke that the way he goes up is through Samaria. Remember Samaria in John chapter 4, where Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman And Ben talked about that moment when he sits with this woman from Saqqara and says, I am the living water. I will give you water for which you will never thirst. Jesus decides to go through Samaria again. Now, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have heard all these things. Jesus walking through Samaria. No good Jew would go through Samaria. But on his way to Tabernacles, Jesus does again. So he goes through Samaria and he heads up to the feast. And it says in verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And and there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So we have another type of unbeliever, the uninformed. Jesus is here with what I call the ignorant. They don't know what's really going on. So some look at him and say, you know, we've heard about this guy. He does good miracles. He fed 5,000, we heard. That's a good thing. And others are saying, no, he's a deceiver. Now, to be a deceiver was, as Deuteronomy 13 said, very serious. Deuteronomy 13 said, if anyone comes up among you and claims to be a prophet, but is a false prophet, you can tell by whether or not what he says comes true or not. But if he's a false prophet, then you're to stone him, you're to execute him. So, being a deceiver was a big deal. Now, in our modern age of the First Amendment, we have deceivers all over the place, many on Christian TV, in fact. So, deceivers all over the place, and you're allowed to be a deceiver and gain whatever following you can and whatever you can make out of it, that's fine. In the first century, being a deceiver with Deuteronomy 13 hanging over your head would be dangerous. And so, it's, of course, the Jewish leaders who are saying, Jesus is a deceiver. We know that as we get later to John, we'll see that. The Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin... Remember, Nicodemus from chapter 3 comes to Jesus at night. We will see that he too was a leading Pharisee, perhaps one of the Sanhedrin himself who first encountered Jesus in that episode. Nicodemus kind of knew what was going on, probably talking with the others, saying, You know, before we call him a deceiver, maybe we ought to hear him out. So all of this is sort of going on, as we'll see in the coming chapters. But now we have this decision to make Is Jesus a deceiver or is he a good man? And all of us have to answer this question ourselves. Now, there are some who might say, well, he's not God, he's not holy like Christians teach. But he was a good teacher. He was a good man. He was a moral, righteous prophet. He taught good things to help make people live better lives. And that sort of teaching to some might be very non-offensive. Others claim he's a deceiver. And there are those, these hard atheists that we've seen in recent years like Dawkins and Hitchens and Sam Harris and these others, who would say that Jesus is deceptive, uh, who would say that religion is evil. Even the benign form of Christianity, it's still all evil leading people astray. And so we still have these same people today, people who are confused about what he's saying and what he's doing. And so we have these uninformed people. Now, if you, you can gag Jesus if you want There was a recent, uh, last decade or so, the Jesus Seminar, you might remember, where some self-appointed scholars got together and said, we're going to decide what Jesus really said. And they went through the New Testament writings, and they took out from the Gospels the things they didn't like about what Jesus said, and they left behind the things that they did like. And so basically, they gagged the message of Jesus by taking out the things they didn't want to hear, and they left behind the things that they did. And if you do that, you might come up with a nice 20th century palatable Jesus. Even if you look at the movies of the 1960s and 70s, you see there, what is Jesus? He's portrayed as a Southern California hippie from Haight-Ashbury. I mean, he's a really cool, you know, and he's with the people. And he's talking about love and forgiveness and all the things of the 60s. You take out much of his apocalyptic sort of preaching about the coming kingdom of God, and he looks very different. So the Jewish leaders... They're really hearing what Jesus is saying, aren't they? They're hearing what he means when he says that I am the purification. I am one that's replacing the Jewish purification system. When Jesus tells Nicodemus that I am the way and the truth and the life, and it's through me being born again that one becomes part of the kingdom of God. So they know all of this. Even in the miracle of uh, chapter 5, where he heals the man who is lame for 38 years, I want to show you the Jewish connection to this in Isaiah Chapter 35. And, and some of you may want to flip to Isaiah 35, but uh, in Isaiah 35, uh, verse 5, Isaiah writes, and in this context, Isaiah is talking about the coming Messiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What Isaiah does in chapter 35 is talk about the coming Messiah. Who will be a healer. Now, when Jesus heals a man lame for 38 years, right near the temple precincts, right there in the the, the pool of Bethesda, undoubtedly they're thinking this same idea. He is the one saying that he is the Messiah because he does that. And if you flip over from 35 to chapter 40, and and those uh, verses, those chapters between 36 and 39, kind of interpose a different idea, but beginning in chapter 40 of Isaiah through 55, if you've got half an hour today, read Isaiah 40 to 55. Read that in light of the promised coming Messiah that Isaiah is talking about. And there you will see dramatically that what Jesus did is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. That's who Jesus is. And so the the disciples, uh, well, Jesus is now in Jerusalem, and there's much muttering about him. You might say that uh, people are talking about him, whispering about him. Jesus is trending now in the temple square. People are talking about him. So he's trending. And what's this guy about? Is he leading people astray or what's going on? So they needed to know. Now in verse 14, we have the puzzled. Another type of unbeliever, the puzzled. Verses 14 to 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. Now you could just, if you're a rabbi, just go into the temple area and begin teaching. The temple area, the square there, is about 35 acres. So it's very large about a million and a half square feet. And I sat down and did some research and calculations on it. It's the size of six super Walmarts. Now, have you ever been lost in a super Walmart trying to find a family member? The Jewish leaders initially couldn't find Jesus, but they're looking for him. They're looking to see where he's at. They can't find him. But in this large area, if you're a rabbi, you could just go over here And begin teaching and your little school of followers would follow you and hear you and somebody else over there. And so this cacophony of teaching is going on with these Jewish rabbis all throughout the temple square talking about their own teaching. And so Jesus stands up now in verse 14 in the middle of the feast and begins teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So they're looking at him saying, you never went to a rabbi school. You never got the proper training. So, how are you able to say these things? Now, in rabbinic teaching, what you did was you, and this is very laborious, you had to specifically learn what the prior rabbis had all said. And so it was very tedious memorizing point after point of what prior rabbis had said. Today, it's collected what's called the Mishnah, which my copy is 1,200 pages long. And it answers every question by saying, Rabbi X said this, but Rabbi that said that. And it goes on and on and on. So if I were to do that this morning, I might stand up and say, oh, but Professor Boving says this, or Professor Hodge says that, Professor Warfield described it this way. And what I would be doing is creating an authority over me that I could then say, and I think this is our answer. And my answer this morning had better be between the goalposts of what these other prior rabbis had said. Because if I go outside of that, then it becomes a new teaching. So Judaism had a way of perpetuating itself in a very consistent fashion. And it stayed very consistent in its habits and its thought by staying within what the prior rabbis had said. But what did Jesus do? He comes along and he says, you heard it said, but I tell you. You heard the rabbis all say this, but let me tell you what I say. Now Jesus is specifically and explicitly making it clear that his is a new teaching. He's doing something different. And when he says about himself what he does, it's very dramatically seen to be, be very countercultural and problematic. So Jesus answered, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Think dramatically about that. Let's talk about Jesus' teaching. The first thing he says is, God is his divine source. God is the source of his teaching. It's not of him, it's of God. But there's a little caveat after that because he says, I am God. So it is his in the end. But in his earthly humiliation, Jesus is describing his teaching as being one coming from God. Impliedly by that, of course, the Jewish leaders are hearing that their teaching is not of God. Their teaching was of the common rabbis of the day. Jesus, he says, my teaching is from God himself. And so Jesus has this divine source of his teaching. It's from God. And then in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. We also learn and come to accept the claims of Jesus by understanding that he taught according to God's will. Jesus only taught what was God's will. His teaching was not some unique sort of brand new way of living a better life or having a happier circumstance today. His way was teaching what is God's will, always seeking what God wanted him to do at his appropriate time. And so Jesus relies on God's will. And you will know whether uh, what I say, he says, is God's will if you pursue God's will. He's saying, Jesus is saying, that if you want to know whether my teaching is true, then you yourself need to first commit yourself to determining God's will, pursuing God's will. And if you pursue God's will, you will find that what I'm saying is the truth. In verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. What Jesus is doing, again, in this earthly humiliation, we say, is he becomes a man. And and for this moment, at least just conceive of Jesus as a simple Galilean with dirty feet. I mean, that's who he was. He had a Galilean accent. They saw him as a, a man, as a regular man. And that's what was so challenging about his teaching. He didn't walk six inches above the ground and, and portray himself as some sort of superhero. It was his teaching. And so, but his teaching was always to glorify the Father. You'll see this again in chapter 17 during this high priestly prayer where Jesus says, all, all that I do is to glorify you, Father, until you bring me back into your glory which I left behind. And Philippians chapter 2 has its same idea that Jesus didn't conceive of the glory of God to be something to be grasped, but he let it go, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he's leaving behind his heavenly glory to come to earth to be a man, knowing that he'll be returned to that glory. And so there's this Father's glory. And then in verse 19, we see this, uh, this reference to humanity's sin. Has not Moses given you the law, but none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? They sought to break the law of Moses, which said, Do not murder. They're trying to kill Jesus. And Jesus says, You're the ones breaking the law. You're the ones seeking to kill me for no reason. And so he's pointing out their sin. Verse 20 the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? They look at him and they claim, You have a demon. Now, this may be either literally, they think you're demon possessed, or it may have been something of a, a first century figure of speech saying, You're crazy. Who's trying to kill you? None of us are. The crowd looks at Jesus saying, you're the one with the demon. You're insane. You're crazy. We're not trying to kill you. But you know, Jesus himself knows. He's only five five months from the next Passover when that very same crowd would be seeking to kill him. So he knows what's coming. He knows they are, in fact, seeking to kill him. But Jesus answers in verse 21. I did one work, and that's that healing of the lame man in chapter 5. I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise, circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I indeed made a man whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but, by, but judge with right judgment. Jesus reflects, reflects back to this time when he heals this man lame for 38 years on the Sabbath says he can walk, and the Jews were mad because he broke the Sabbath. But in the Jewish understanding of not breaking the Sabbath, they came to understand and agree and write about that the commandment to be circumcised on the eighth day was such a high priority that even on the Sabbath it would happen. So if a baby boy was born on the Sabbath, he would on the next Sabbath be circumcised. And so you could do that on the Sabbath because that was more important. Now the Jews broke the human body up Into 248 parts. And what Jesus is saying is, arguing from the lesser to the greater, if you think it's okay okay to deal with one part on a Sabbath, I heal the whole man. Don't you think it makes more sense to say that if I heal the whole man, that that's even a greater work consistent with what God wants us to do? And so he's challenging them in their own theology, their own way of thinking. It's the whole man that needs to be made whole. And he says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Verse uh, 24. We have to judge. Everybody judges. Everybody makes an assessment of who Jesus was and what He was doing. All of us have to do that. Jesus says, if you're going to do that, make sure you do it with all the facts. Know everything I say and taught. Know I understand everything I did. And make a judgment consistent with that. So we come now to verse 25, the inquiring. Jesus now meets with a number of people who are impressed with Him. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can't it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Messiah appears, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So their understanding is the Messiah will one day appear gloriously out of the sky, unknown from where he came from, and he will be the Messiah. He'll just show up and lead the people of Israel to their liberation from the Romans. But we know Jesus is from Galilee. We know his mom. We saw his dad, He's got brothers standing here. This is just a simple Galilean. Certainly the Messiah can't come from Galilee. Nathaniel, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, right? So this is their thinking. So Jesus says uh, in verse uh, 28, so Jesus proclaimed, as he taught them in the temple, "You know me." and he 's saying this, I think, sort of sarcastically, "You know me, you think you know me." And you know where I come from. In other words, you think you know where I come from. You think I come from Galilee. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, God, for I come from him and he sent me. Jesus is explaining that he is the one from God. He is the Messiah that comes down. And he is now in their very presence, tabernacling with them during the Feast of Tabernacles. You see how dramatic this is. Verse 30, So they were seeking to arrest Him. But no one laid a hand on Him. Why not? Because in God's timing, it wasn't time yet. They couldn't find a way of arresting Him. Maybe they couldn't lay a hand on Him because Jesus had a little gathering of people around Him that were liking sort of what He's saying and they didn't think it was the right opportune time to arrest Jesus. But the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, are looking for Him. And they couldn't because His hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in Him. They said... When the Christ appears, when Messiah comes, will will he do more signs than this man has done? They were looking for signs, and they saw in Jesus a Messiah that did many great signs and wonders. And they're wondering, can can there be a Messiah greater than this one? And so many people are inquiring. They're looking at Jesus, and it says that many of them began to believe. So we have those who are inquiring, who are impressed by his teaching and what he's doing. But then there's the hostile. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent offers to arrest him, officers to arrest him. So the chief priests, there was really only one high priest. There were other chief priests, part of the 70, the Sanhedrin, and others. So this is a high Jewish leadership who then sent temple guards out to arrest him. And so these temple guards, whether they're Levites or other guards, they're there to keep the peace on the temple mount. And the reason the Jewish leaders wanted to keep the peace on the Temple Mount is because if they didn't, the Romans would. Sitting right over the head of them was what's called the Antonia Fortress, right there at the corner. And the Antonia Fortress, during the festivals, were filled with Roman soldiers. The Romans even only let on the Day of Atonement, which only happened last week from this passage, the Day of Atonement only let the high priest have the garments of the Temple, Only for that day, the Romans kept the garments in the Antonia Fortress themselves. And the Antonia Fortress even had a passageway that went through underneath the Temple Mount and came up right there in the middle of the Temple area. So the Romans were just seconds away. Another reason why the high priests or the Jewish chief priests and these leaders didn't want this disturbance is because they had a pretty good thing going. They got to collect a large portion of the temple tax that was paid. They were making good living. They had very high palaces and quarters right near Herod's palace, uh, just a few blocks away. They didn't want this messed up by some Messiah. Now, other Pharisees did want a cunning Messiah. But you don't want one that's going to fail. And you don't want one that's saying that you're the bad guy. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was saying that you Pharisees are the bad guys. You're not teaching people properly what the, the scriptures are. You're missing out on it. And so there's this real conflict. And so we see in verse 35, then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. I'm here now, he says, but soon, in a little while, a little longer, then I'm going to him who sent me. What's he talking about? Jesus is saying, That at the next Passover, five months from now, six months from now, you will come to seek me, but then I'll be gone. Here I am now. Listen to my teaching now. But in a little while, next Passover, these soldiers will arrest me. These Jewish leaders will condemn me. And they'll drag me to my own crucifixion. In a little while, he told his disciples this already, they will crucify me. This is what's coming. I will shed my blood on a cross for you. In a little while, that's happening. But for now, I'm here. And all of us have that moment in our own life when we're presented with the claims that Christ makes. And we have a decision to make, an assessment. Are we now going to assess him properly? Or are we going to assess, assess him differently and say, no, he's a false teacher. He's a deceiver. Ignore him. Let him go. Don't waste your time. Enjoy your Sundays out in the beautiful summer days. Jesus is saying, in a little while, I'll be gone. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? There is a day coming when all of us will meet our Maker and have to answer for what we did with Jesus. Were we curious like some? Were we skeptical like his brothers? Were we hostile like the, the Jewish leaders? We all have this moment in our life. I know this past couple of days in California, they've had these earthquakes, and uh, they had a 6.7 or 6.8 several days ago, which they thought was an earthquake, but then a 7.1 came later, and there's only one earthquake. Everything before is called a foreshock, and everything after is an aftershock. And Deanne and I, and my uh, oldest two, we lived in California during the Northridge earthquake. And I remember when that earthquake hit, my house shook. And all the glass in the cupboards began to rattle and crash, and the TV crashed to the floor, and the china cabinet literally walked across the room about 15, 20 feet, walked across the room with glass cracking everywhere. So it just sounded like a train running through your house. And I, the first thing I did, moments later, is I picked up the phone, I called my mom, I said, Mom, we just had the big one. Just had the big one. She, oh, you're kidding. I said, No, we just had a huge earthquake. And I talked to her for just a few moments, and then hung up the phone. And I couldn't call again for another ten days because the phone lines were all down, and the phone lines were filled, and all of this. And so during that time, uh, we're in this earthquake; everything shattered. No, there's no cell phones, no communication. We we lost our water; the water lines are polluted. The gas lines didn't work; they blew up in Balboa, just two blocks from where we lived. So we were right in the middle of the Northridge earthquake; lost everything. And we thought that might be the big one. And now out today in California, they think maybe this is a big one. Or they know there's another big one really coming. Everybody's looking for the big one. Everybody's looking for that day. They're thinking, they're fearing a day of judgment coming when there's the, the big one coming. Well, there is a big one coming one day when we're going to meet our maker. And everything that we have, the material wealth that we've gained, will shatter to the ground. It'll all be gone. And you'll have to stand before God and say, what world did I live in? Do we live in a world where God so loved the world? He loves the people of the world. Or do we live in that material world, that physical world, where we seek only the things for ourselves? That's the challenge we have, is deciding what world we live in. Do we love the world that God loves, or do we love the world that God hates? We have to make that choice. We have to make that decision. Let's stand as we pray. And as we do, let's, again, think on these great words of John, where he's convicting, preaching, showing these people that he is the Messiah, that he is the true Messiah, come, to sacrifice himself for their sins. Our Father, we thank you for your word in John chapter 7. We see in this passage the difficulty that these first century Jews had in understanding who Jesus was. Some were skeptical, some were hostile, some were inquiring, some just didn't know, they were confused. But Lord, we ask that if we ourselves pursue your will,